This morning's sermon text will be First Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgence is there even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow in, be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been a, the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows for when their passion drew them away from Christ. They desire to marry and so incur condemnations for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be others going about from house to house, and not only others, but also gossipers and bisabolists, seeing what they should not. So I will have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give their adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has ready who are widows, let, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that if so that it may care for those who are truly widows. I think we are uh, fascinated with the family. I mean, we, we love looking at the nature of the family. I mean, you see this in the television shows. I mean, think about all the shows that are about families. In my day, it was Leave it to Beaver, My Three Sons. Yes, they were in black and white, but they were very well produced. I'll just say that. Um, I think about All in the Family. I think about more modern, you know, Full House, Modern Family, Bluey. Some of these other shows are, are an incredible amount of shows that love looking at the family, the dynamics, the, 
the hurts, the anger, the forgiveness. You know, th there's a dynamic in the family that is really quite significant. And I, and I think this is what Paul is getting at in our passage today. He's looking at the nature of the family. That is the church family. Now, if you've been here, you've been going through First Timothy with us, and Paul is really instructing Timothy, this young pastor, on how God has designed his church to exist in a world that is antagonistic to God and that is hostile to his people. And so how do we exist with one another? And you saw in chapter 1 that the church has been designed by God to both promote and protect the truth, the gospel itself. That God has given the gospel to the church to proclaim and protect against false teachers. God's designed the church to be a place of worship. And so we had instruction for men and for women. How do we worship in the household of God? In chapter 3, about the nature of leadership within the church, the types of leaders and the qualifications of leaders. Chapter 4, teachers in the church, confronting error, promoting truth. And here in chapter 5, how the church is to be organized as a family, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. So our passage here that was read, those 16 verses, he really does two things. He's instructing us how we can understand the church that god through the gospel forms the church into a family mothers and brothers sisters and fathers and then how we care for the church so how do we relate to one another is in verses one and two and then in three to sixteen how do we care for those in our family so how do we relate and love amidst the differences that we have and then how do we care for those who are in uniquely vulnerable or difficult positions, such as the widow that was spoken about. Uh, so look with me at 1 and 2, because we're looking at how we relate to one another. <clears throat> Listen again, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. So Paul's telling Timothy, listen, when you pass through this church, you're going to have all kinds of relationships that are going to be different. And you're going to have to relate differently to different types of people. And so he begins to kind of tease those out. Older men, don't rebuke them harshly. Uh, that word is used one time in the New Testament. It has a severity to it. It has a harshness to it. Now, he's saying don't rebuke them harshly. It doesn't mean that you're not to correct them. It doesn't mean that they don't need correction or admonishment. It's just don't do it harshly. Don't do it severely. Don't do it real, you know, cutting to the soul. But rather with, with encouragement, with respect, with, with dignity. And not just older men, but older women both deserve that, that respect and that honor. Uh, again, if a word of correction needs to be given, then do it, do it with respect as if it was your father. Or do it, do it with charity and affection as if it was your mother. In other words, you're to look differently at the man, and you look at the older man and the older woman, and you're to respond with a degree of respect and dignity. Again, it doesn't mean you agree with everything they're doing, or that you don't say anything to what they may be doing, but it's in the way that you do it. So John Calvin, in his commentary, writes, He does not wish old men to be spared or indulged in such manner as to sin with impunity or without correction, he only wishes that some respect be paid to their age, that they may be more patiently bearing 
to be admonished. So, so that, that changes the way we look at those who are older, older men, older women, when we speak dignity, honor, kindness. But he also has a word for the younger men and the younger women in the church. He tells Timothy to treat the younger men as brothers. In other words, instead of taking back and standing on your role as pastor and having a certain high-mindedness and speaking down to those who are your peers, no, appeal to them as brothers. Appeal to them as equals. They're brothers with you in this faith. And for the younger women, notice he pays particular attention. He says, in all purity with the younger women. I think he's telling Timothy, be mindful of the nuance that takes place when you do cross-gender ministry. When you're seeking the spiritual good of a woman, be aware of the unique temptations, the romantic interests uh, that are subject to that kind of relationship. You know, when Miguel preached last week from chapter 4, the, one of the last verse was, keep watch over yourself. That's how you keep watch over yourself. You recognize that I'm going to treat the younger women as sisters. It, it doesn't get into how far can I uh, be uh, affectionate with somebody before I cross some line. It, it removes that whole discussion. Just treat them like a sister. You know, t- treat them as you would a sister. Uh, maintain all purity in your relationship. So you, you see what Paul's doing here is he's saying that the gospel fashions, or I should say refashions, our relationships with one another. So we're members in this church, those of you here who are members, this is now the way that we are to view one another. And I think the reason Paul's doing that is because he knows this. It's self-evident that the way I view a person will be the way I treat them. So if I view them as insignificant, if I view them as unnecessary, uh, then I'm probably going to treat them in like manner. But if I view them as a family member, if I view them as a mother, a father, a sister, or a brother, then it's going to affect the way I treat them. And as we view one another in these new ways, then it's going to change the way we affect each other. It's going gonna, it's gonna to help us to move with greater kindness and dignity and honor and love, as Dalton was praying. You know, you, you think about it. In the nature of our world, we have business relationships. We have relationships within the community. We have relationships and social context. And those relationships are often born out of shared interests and shared experiences. Now, when our interests change and when our experiences change, then so do those relationships. But it's not that way in the family. Uh, see, the church has been made and, and fashioned by the gospel in such a way that though we are different temperamentally, our experiences, our education, our interests, we still have that common bond through the gospel that God has now a, is our father. We've been adopted. We're now brothers and sisters to one another with Christ as the head of this family. So he's refashioned our relationships such that now we can view one another and treat one another differently than the world does. And this is how God intends to use his church to display his wisdom to the world by virtue of how we treat each other. It's really quite significant. It doesn't mean we don't have conflict. We do have conflict, just like any family does. Uh, But our conflict is handled differently. We seek to reconcile. We want to be 
forgiven. We want to seek forgiveness. We want to extend forgiveness to one another. But not just in the differences we have by temperament and the differences that we have in interest. Think about the generational differences between fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. You know, the generational differences are significant to a church. They cause all kinds of conflict. That's why you have 20-something churches. You have white-haired churches. You have churches that are more family-centric. You know, we tend to move in terms of gathering around these temporal unifying things of we're all 25. And it makes sense why we do it. Right? I mean, if you're younger, you tend to like your music louder. You like greater informality. You like to be able to move quicker on a dime. Uh, the churches that tend to be older, they tend to be a little bit more stuck in tradition. They like formality. Uh, they probably like the music a little bit less in terms of volume. And, and, and so you have these differences there. And what Paul's saying is, no, the world can do that. But the church does something radically different. I'm thankful for the cross-generational church we have here. It is unique. Uh, There is no doubt the growing demographic of our group is all below 40, but there's always senior citizens joining the church. There, There is a good demographic here, but it takes effort, doesn't it? I mean, it takes us giving up of, well, my style of music is more this way. You know, or I wish we could change things faster this way. You know, but, but, you, but you see that willingness, because we're a family, to work together to find some, some common balance as we focus on the gospel. So that's what Paul's driving at. And, and what it should be for us is a marker of our own faith. See, many of us, I think we draw assurance that we are rightly related to God because our theology is correct. And we think, if I believe correctly, therefore I'm saved. Now, I don't want to deny the need to believe in orthodox fashion. But the scripture goes to how we treat each other as an assurance of faith. So, for example, in 1 John 3, he says, We know that we've passed out of death into life because we think as reformed thinkers. No, it doesn't say that. No, it says, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So he uses the way that we relate to one another as an indication that we, in fact, have passed out of death to life. We can think rightly, but not love well. That's a problem. I mean, that's a problem that we want to reconcile. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be assured, but... It sure does mean you should go back and we want to check the heartbeat of what do we really believe about God and what is saving faith? Is saving faith simply thinking rightly or thinking that Jesus is useful to us? Or is it loving Christ so deeply that I love those who love Christ? And that's what Paul is saying. So he's kind of refashioning our relationships here. So in verses 1 and 2, he's saying this is how we relate to one another. We are to view each other as brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, And that should drive how we behave, how we speak, how we approach. It ought to drive the assumptions of good that we have for others. As opposed to always thinking there's something smoking. There's something behind the curtain. Okay, so Paul moves from how we relate to one another now to how we care for one another. And you see this in 3 to 16. 
Now, this is where he speaks about caring for widows. And don't check out on me when we get to this, because I know many of you are thinking, well, I'm not a senior, and I don't really know a senior citizen, and my parents are still decent shape, and I don't really... Think about this. Paul spends the book itself, 1 Timothy has 113 verses in it. 14 are spent on this topic. That's 12%. That's a lot of the book. It's a big chunk of the book to spend on how we care for those who are aging. Now, why does Paul do this? Well, because it's really important. It's really significant. It's significant not just for the seniors, those who are aging. You've got to realize now, in a Greco-Roman world, there, there were no safety nets for women who lost their husbands. There were no safety nets for those who were older. I mean, they, there was no Social Security. There was no insurance. There was no 401k plans. In, in fact, in a Greco-Roman world, that the husband's will, his inheritance, or what he had as an estate, would often go to the firstborn son and not to the wife. It would go to the firstborn son. And so if, if the firstborn son was at odds with the mother, or the second, perhaps, wife of the husband, well, then she might be in dire straits. So it was a real problem that the church had to care for all these widows. And, and Paul's saying, this is an important issue. But it's not just important because of the trouble that, that senior citizens who maybe don't have all the means that they need, it's more than that God really finds it important. You know, not just the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment should be enough for us to see that God really, he says, honor your father and mother. That's clearly important. But throughout the Old Testament, God is constantly worried about the widow. God's constantly concerned about the orphan and the sojourner, the alien, the immigrant. Let me just give you a few examples. Psalm 68. Uh, he is a father to the fatherless and a protector of the widows. Is God in his holy habitation? So as God remains in his holy habitation, he's concerned. Or Deuteronomy 10, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner. He gives them food and clothing. Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be anyone who perverts justice do the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. And all the people say amen. So, so you see, God has a deep concern and awareness moving towards those who are in vulnerable and weak positions. And in this context, he's speaking about the nature of widows. And this is why Paul makes it such a big deal. And I think he's speaking about those who are truly widows, because you look at your text, you see in verse 3, he says, honor the widows who are truly widows. And then, then jump all the way at the end, go to verse 16, and he says, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Truly widows, so Paul is kind of bookending, if you will, this whole passage, that he's trying to give wisdom to the church about those who are truly widows, those who are to be cared for. Paul's actually going to give qualifications to the church to help the church discern who ought they be caring for. Because when it says honor the widows, that word for honor, we're going to see it used with elders next week, but that word for honor includes not just respect, but financial help uh, to care for them financially. So Paul wants to give Timothy, who ought we to be caring for? The needs of the world outpace the capacity of the church to serve. So Paul is giving here, first off, I want you to see that very early in the church, there was social concern for those in trouble. 
there was a desire for social justice for those in the church. So you see that very early on. But you see it married up with the compassion and common sense. Just common sense. Who should we be helping? All these mouths to feed, which ones ought to truly be fed? Who are the true widows? So it gives us three distinctives or three qualifications in this passage. First, he says that you're to help those who are truly widows, that is, who have no children or grandchildren to care for them. Look with me at 3 and 4. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So he's saying that a true widow, now obviously a true widow is one who loses her spouse, but for the purposes of who should the church be seeking to serve most, it's those who have no children or grandchildren who can care for them. They're destitute. Their options are limited. They don't have resources in their family. They are truly widows whom the church should be serving. He's saying that those with children and grandchildren have at least some fallback plan. And Paul's saying that the biological family, so we just learned about the spiritual family in verses 1 and 2, the spiritual family is a cosmic reality that we need to live in, but it doesn't displace the biological family. And so he's saying that a, a, a widow that has children or grandchildren, those children and grandchildren ought to care for the parents. They ought to be making provision. They ought to be working with that aged senior, that mother or father, caring for them. Uh, th that's appropriate. And it's not because it's a moral duty, and it's not because it makes us a better society. No, Paul says it pleases God. You want to know what pleases God? Make sure and take care of your parents. Uh, I mean, that pleases God. God is honored. Why? Because it reflects God's care for those who are vulnerable for those who are aging and those who are deteriorating in their abilities to function as easily as perhaps you are. But not just does it please God, it also evidences your faith. Again, we see in verse 8, look with me at 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. It's worse than an unbeliever. There's something even fundamental to the non-Christian to know that they ought to care, make some return for their parents who have given them so much. So he's saying here that it's a denial of the very faith we espouse if we don't care for those who have cared for us. Uh, so that's the first thing we see. We call this, some theologians call this the law of moral proximity, a law of moral proximity. And what I mean by that is you have greater responsibilities to those who are closer in proximity to you. Uh, so in other words, that doesn't mean you don't care for those who are starving in another land, but we want to make sure and care for our own and them. But we don't want to miss the responsibilities we have for those that are closest to us relationally. There's a responsibility there. So Paul's saying, he's giving instruction to the church to care for widows, and he's saying, care for those especially who have no children or grandchildren to care for them. But secondly, care for those widows among you that are godly, that have a Christian witness. Now look with me at 5 and 6 on this. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers 
night and day. But she, that is a widow, but perhaps not truly a widow, is self-indulgent and dead, even while she lives. So Paul's saying that as the church has to make these difficult judgments on who it can serve, uh, the idea is to look at their life. Are they living in a godly way? Uh, this tr woman, who's truly a widow, has set her hope on God. And you know that because she's praying to him day and night. He's the only one to whom she's turning. She's not trying to fabricate ways out of her problem. She's turning to God, seeking help. And you can see her godly life because of verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. She's been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. She's brought up children, has shown hospitality, washed the feet of saints, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. So you see that this woman, who's truly a widow, has walked out faithfulness in marriage, faithfulness in mothering, uh, faithfulness to the saints, caring for the afflicted. She's truly a widow. She, this is, if we had to you know, qualify who can we serve, we are to look at Christian witness. Now, why? You say, well, that seems kind of prejudicial. Well, no, no, no. Notice the contrast. But she who is self-indulgent is already dead. Paul's saying she doesn't need financial help. She needs spiritual help. She's dead. Uh, to give someone money who is self-indulgent, that word means self-pampering, it, it's just going to create greater pampering. It, it, it's, gonna, it's like giving money to someone who could just turn around, grab it, and just go buy another bottle of liquor or go buy drugs. You know, th there's a way where money can actually crush people and generosity can actually hurt people. And so Paul's trying to help the church navigate this difficult road of will the money advance good in the life of the person? So you see, those are two qualifications he gives. You know, do they have family to support? If they don't, then support them. If they're living a godly life and the money will advance us, then, then support them. But, but thirdly, you see there's an age requirement. Look at the beginning of 9. He says, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age. Now, I don't want you to read these things. Sometimes I think we come to a text and we read it as a rule. In other words, we may have a widow here who has no children and and she's living a godly life, but she's 59 and a half, and I'm really sorry, you just got to wait six months. And figure out how to live for six months, and then come on back, and we'll help you on your 60th birthday. We'll give you a little gift. You know, th that's not what he's saying here. It, it, it's a principle he's going after. Uh, the principle is he chose 60 because, by and large, most people were more retired at 60. Uh, the, the age of life, you know, now the average age is around 76. Uh, then it was much earlier. And 60 was a, a, an age where women weren't usually getting remarried. They, they, were, they were past the marriageable age. It, it was an age when they couldn't re-engage in some sort of manual labor to help provide for themselves. And so if they're over 60, then they are to be uh, cared for by the church. Now, <clears throat> I think the problem, or at least some of the problems, and we kind of see the nature of the problems in the New Testament church by what he addresses. That's how we kind of get a window into the social context of the New Testament. You know, and what we find here is that in 11 to 16, in those passages, uh, in those verses, they're, very, they're kind of difficult to understand. They definitely feel culturally odd. 
where he's telling women to marry and to be domestic in the homes and to not burn with passion. Like, what do we do with all that stuff? I think the problem was this, that there were many widows in the church at this time, and Paul's helping Timothy navigate because the church was supporting younger widows and older widows, and it was burdening the church. And so he's giving them a criteria for how to navigate these difficult and ethical issues. And so he speaks to these younger widows. Now, these younger widows, and many scholars uh, assume, and, and some even think that there was this monastic order of widows. That's why you have, let them be enrolled in verse 9. That, that many of these widows in Chrysostom, for one, spoke about this kind of, this group of women who were widows who dedicated themselves to the church. They received money from the church to do service to the church. Kind of like an early, an early version of nuns within the Roman Catholic system. That's what many think may have been going on. But Paul's trying to help the church leadership understand, you have these younger windows, widows, they made some vow of chastity that we're going to stay single with the balance of our lives, we're going to dedicate our lives to the church, and the church is going to support them, and now the church is burdened. The problem was that some of these younger women made perhaps these promises of chastity too early, and they began to burn with passion, as he explains. They want to be married, they want to be in an intimate relationship. And so they began to break their vows and get married, but get married to those who were not even in the faith. And that's what he speaks about when it says that they're renouncing the faith they claimed or they're straying after Satan. And that's why Paul's saying, get married. Get married in the Lord. In other words, if you're younger, get married. Raise families. Be involved. Uh, don't, don't be subject to the temptations of no work, which is idleness, busybody, gossiping. He's saying, no, get married. Remember now, there was a teaching we saw back in chapter 4 where marriage was being denied as God-given. Marriage was one of those lesser things of the world that if you were spiritual, you didn't pursue. And Paul's saying, no, 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 it's a gift of God. It's a gift of God that we're to enjoy. So I think that's why Paul's saying 60 here is he's trying to give the church wisdom about how do they move in terms of who do they support. So, so what we see here is that Paul is giving instructions, not just to how to love one another as brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, but, but how do we care for one another? The church is called upon often to make these difficult moral decisions about who do we support and who do we not. And, and you see some of the criteria here. Are there other sources of help that can be, you know, that can be sought? You know, are they living godly life? Will the support that the church gives, the benevolence the church gives, will it aid them or will it, will it crush them? You know, are, they in, are they in real need? Should they perhaps make a change in their life? So you see Paul trying to give wisdom, and that's the wisdom that we need as a church. Now you're thinking, well, what do you do with this? Well, there's a lot that we can do. Let me speak to three groups here in the church. Number one, let me speak to those who have families. You're you're, maybe you're raising kids right now, and you have parents, and your parents are aging. What do you take away from a passage like this? Well, you ought to take away that, that the family, the biological family, you with your aging parents, <clears throat> and I want my children to pay close attention to the words I'm about to share. I'm dying to do that. Um, that you have a primary responsibility to seek to care 
for those in your family, your mothers and fathers, and, and even a little bit beyond that, in your household, that you're seeking to care for them. And then notice what he, why I say this. Look back with me at verse 4. In verse 4 he says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. In other words, godliness, practical godliness, begins in the house first. In other words, it's always easier to give outside the house because you get all kinds of attaboys. You get all kinds of rounds of applause. It's hardest to be, you know, you'll wash the dishes in a neighbor's house. You won't wash the dishes in your own house. But, but he's saying, learn to show godliness to your own household. That's where godliness is learned, it's practice, it's evidence. But notice that he says, and make some return to your parents, some return. Uh, what does he mean by this? Well, you think about all the work a parent does for their children. Uh, not just bringing them into life, uh, but the feeding, the caring. I mean, for years and years, a child can't survive on its own without parental direction and support. There's no way. There's no way. I mean, I'm just, this fact alone, well, I can rest my case. A parent will change the child's pants 7,000 times before they learn how to use the toilet. 7,000 times per kid. The Department of Agriculture, using 2020 numbers, said it costs $233,000 to raise a child. That's not including tuition. Two hundred and thirty-three grand. Well, you can even cut that in half and you begin to realize there is so much that parents do for children. And so he says, make some return to, to, to care for those that have cared for you. And it, now, it's not just finance, right? It, it, it's also emotional, relational. It, it, it's also spiritual. That the care is to go beyond just the physical care. It's to be emotional care. You know, as people get older, uh, they begin to decline, can't hear as well, don't engage in conversations as well. It, it, it's a, they kind of move to the side a little bit. Uh, they, they can't handle the dizzying speed of cultural change. Just technology alone is and, and they begin to isolate, and they begin to step back, and it's up to the kids to keep them involved. Now, I realize it's complicated, because as people get older, they get crankier. They, they, get, they get less resilient. They want it their way. And, and, and so there are all kinds of snags associated with this dynamic. And I'm just encouraging you, those of you who have families and who have parents that are aging, to begin to speak it to these things. Listen, the end-of-life issues that I often walk through with older people, they are ethically challenging. Uh, the the end-of-life issues, how long do I keep working through the medical, you know, kind of grind to maintain life, going to doctors? I, I mean, it's, it's a difficult discussion to have. May I encourage you to start it now? Get to know the wishes of your parents. Get to understand what they want, the efforts made toward them. But there is this responsibility clearly in the text that is upon the children and grandchildren to make some return and to show godliness in your own households. Uh, secondly, uh, I would say there's a word to the church, right? The word to the church is that we are also to care for those who are senior, those who are aged, 
those who are struggling. Now, clearly the situation is different. We have Social Security now. We have life insurance policies. Uh, there are 401k. There are pension plans. So many of our widows and those in more vulnerable, vulnerable positions, they do have some sort of aid. Uh, but we're still called to honor those that may not. And we're still called to honor them if it's not with finances or financial help. We're called to honor them with dignity, with honor. As I said, you know, if you've walked with anyone who has lost a spouse, you know it's a difficult thing. It's not just difficult because you lose a spouse. It's difficult because they have to refit into a married world. They become single, and they have to fit into relationships as a single. It's difficult. And then as their own physicality is declining, again, they begin to go to the periphery of life. And so it's up to the church to move with honor and dignity to include them. How do we do this? Well, we involve them in our lives. You draw them into your homes. You invite them to your holidays. Holidays are the worst time for singles. And, and, and I'm speaking now beyond widows. I'm speaking single mothers. I'm speaking single men and single women. I'm thinking about others who are vulnerable, that they're to be drawn in. They're to be given dignity and honor as you would a brother, a sister, or a mother, or a father, it, to, to draw them in. Now, we try as a church, uh, Daniel does a bang-up job visiting our seniors. He visits each senior, prays with them, tries to find out what needs they have. He collects them, you know, he has certain events for seniors, but we do cross-generational stuff with the youth group, with the young pros, trying to draw in the mother-brother, father-sister kind of dynamic. Uh, Sean Williams is deacon of benevolence. He's, he's been involved, David Naylor, in terms of helping people look through the finances and look through, you know, we even have a group of men who have volunteered both to offer their time and expertise at repairing cars, or at fixing homes when the senior is not able to do with the... So we are seeking to aid, but we all play a part in this. It's not simply the church, it's us ministering to our mothers and fathers is what we're doing. And don't succumb to the sin of apathy or ignorance by not caring for those. So that's a word to the church. Third, there's a word to the aged, right? I do have a word to the seniors, those among us who are over 60, as Paul said. I thought seniors were over 65. When Daniel made the senior citizens of this church 60, all of a sudden I found myself in it. I'm like, that doesn't fit. It's got to be 65, isn't it? But there is a word here. And, and notice what he says in verse 7. In verse 7 he says, command these things so that they may be without reproach. It, it's in a, isn't that kind of a crazy? Command these things. I'm called by Paul to command. That makes us bristle, doesn't it? It gets our backs all bowed up. You're not going to tell me what to do. And yet Paul says throughout this letter, command these things. Well, we don't want to hear that in our democratic world. We don't want to hear it. But, but he says command these things. Listen to the why he's calling the pastor to command these things. So they may be without reproach. So to those who are senior among us, we have a responsibility as well. A, we have a responsibility to listen and learn from those who are younger. We've already heard to not despise the youth of Timothy. We have to be open to admonishment. We have to be open to the wisdom that those who are younger may have. Uh, we also have to be setting our hope on God. 
And we have to be continually praying. For those, at least, who are aging and those who are retired, you have more time than you've ever had. What are you doing with the time? Don't go self-indulgent. That's what he warns about. These widows who became self-indulgent. Don't go self-indulgent. Don't be like the man who built more and more and, and had farms and built towers, you know, um, barns, bigger and bigger barns so he could take his life easy. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to throw ourselves into the ministry of the church. Now, I get that there is, there is um, it's a challenge. You know, I used to think getting older made Christianity easier. It does not. It, it, it's harder in some respects. It's harder to focus on reading and thinking through issues. And, and these things that you just do when you're younger, you do intuitively, you can't do that anymore as you're older. And so it takes greater effort. But let me encourage those who are seniors among us that you have to stay in the game. I mean, w we are seeing the tape at the end of the race. I mean, this is one we want to keep running and, and we want to strive. I want you to consider how can you involve those who are younger. I mean, some of these younger families to take their kids out to, to char grill costs them 50 bucks. How can we serve them? How can we draw them into our lives? How can we help them in life? What wisdom can we give to them? The great thing about the seniors is you have one thing you have that they don't have, and that is perspective. You understand the nature of life being played out over a four-quarter game and not a two-quarter game. When I'm with young families all the time, I just keep encouraging them. You're playing a long game here. Your child had a meltdown. It doesn't mean they're going to be an axe murderer. It doesn't mean that. Just give it time. You have a life of leading these children. And, and to try to give perspective to life is essential. And that's what you have when you're older. Because you've seen much of life lived. You have much wisdom. But, but if you're senior and you're aging, you're still useful to God. I think about what some of you have walked through in life. Those, those who are younger need to hear your faithfulness in fire, your difficulty, your struggles, but your continued faithfulness. They need that. They need people ahead of them running the race. But you have to share with them, which means you have to open up your lives to them. So we all have a word here, don't we? And we have a word to those who are young and who have parents. We have a word to the church in general. And, and, and we have a word to us who are older. It's a good word. It reminds us of the family. And this really leads us, right, I think, beautifully to the table. You know, it, when Paul instructs the church on the Lord's Supper, on communion, he instructs them five times. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, when you gather together. <clears throat> in other words, the meal isn't celebrated at a Bible study. It's not celebrated at a small group. It's not celebrated by a youth retreat, you know, on the beach when the sun's setting and it's really cool. No, the table is celebrated when the church gathers as a family. That's when we celebrate the table. We see this when Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. You could say one family, for we all partake of the one loaf. So this family meal is really a meal gathered. And it's gathered with a bunch of prodigals, uh, those who have been born anew. We've been forgiven. We've been re reconciled with God. 
It, it, it's a collection of prodigals around a table who all need the same saving work of Jesus Christ. And we gather together and we remember all that he has done. It, it, the, the table, it, it's not really something that you do, but it is something done in you when he says, do this in remembrance of me. We are reminding ourselves, we're so apt to forget, we're reminding ourselves of the great work of Christ. When you look at the bread, and, and it's broken, you're thinking, it was my sins that broke his body. They were placed upon his body. The judgment for my sins fell upon the son who stood in my place, and his body was broken. He shed his blood. When you look at the cup, a new covenant has been established. You don't have to keep going to God every year with sacrifices, reminding yourself, but what was promised to come has come, and in the blood of Christ, a new promise, a better covenant was established so that we are now related to God forever in Christ, who is perfect in every way and who will always satisfy the Father, making us always of good satisfaction to God. Not because of what we become, but because of what Christ has done. And, and what this ought to do to us, it's something done to us. It, it, it moves our affections. When you see the bread and the cup, I don't want you thinking, you know, I need to rightly think about these things. I do want that. But in addition to that, I want your hearts to be stoked and encouraged over the supreme beauty of Christ and the, and the, the greatness of Christ, the mercy of Christ. Because when you hold the bread, you are affirming, I know that I'm forgiven. I know that I'm reconciled. I know that when I die, I will rise with him. I know that I will see God face to face. I know that all my past sins have been forgiven. I don't have to carry them anymore. I can let them go. They have been, it is finished, he said. And as you remember these things, your affections should move forward in Christ. And if your affections move forward in Christ, they're going to move forward to each other. And that's really what the table is about. And that's why when we come to the table, we want to examine ourselves. We want to take a moment and just consider, do I need to repent? Or do I need to just be encouraged by the promise of God? Or maybe I just need to be so thankful. I haven't thought again of how he has done all this for me. So let's take a moment now and just maybe just close your eyes and, and ask you know, speak to God as you would a father and let it be a point of, of silent thought, thanksgiving, confession, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment.